This is the sixth Sunday of Easter. And it's no accident that on this Sunday we're already starting to talk about the Holy Spirit. I'm a big fan of the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes. Sadly, it's no longer in circulation, but it was one of my favorites. You might remember it. Calvin was an adventurous and precocious six-year-old boy, and Hobbes was his stuffed tiger friend who came to life in Calvin's imagination. Hobbes was Calvin's partner in crime, sarcastic and sardonic. In one memorable strip, Calvin enters the living room of his house where he finds his mother sipping her morning coffee. She looks up in amazement and amusement at how Calvin is dressed. He's wearing a space helmet. He's wearing a cape around his shoulders that falls all the way to the floor and makes a puddle behind him. In one hand, he's carrying a flashlight, and in the other hand, he's carrying a baseball bat. So, his mom asks, what's, what's on for today? Nothing so far, Calvin says. And his mom says, so far? And Calvin says, well, you never know. Something could happen today, and if anything does, by golly, I'm going to be ready for it. Anybody within the sound of my voice feel like Calvin today? First, a tornado, then a virus, then an economy, an economy on life support, and then a straight line wind that knocks out most all of our power. What's next? How do I need to dress when I leave the house today? What do I need to do to get ready for life's next ball? I think that's how the disciples felt. When Jesus, in his final speech to them, his last words told them that he was leaving and they couldn't go where he was going. And today, before he leaves them, he gives them reason to hope. He gives them a word to soothe their fears. He helps them to imagine a future without him. I will not leave you orphaned, he said. I will send another advocate. Another advocate. He, of course, was the first. There's going to be a next chapter. There's going to be a second act. I wonder why we in the church so often treat Easter as the culmination of God's story. Big finish. Curtain call. Forgive the play on words, but why do we put all of our eggs into the Easter basket? What is clear in today's story and what is what is on the way with Pentecost is that Jesus knows resurrection is not the end of the story, but rather the inauguration of the kingdom of God. And if Jesus is the crown prince of the kingdom, today he promises to send his successor, another advocate. Thank goodness, because you and I need all the advocates we can get. That word, advocate, the Greek word is parakletos which is literally translated, the one who dwells. For the Gospel of John, this idea began in the first chapter. You might remember. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And you've heard me describe that word to dwell many times. In the original Hebrew, it means literally to pitch tent beside. Advocate was also a legal term. One way to understand the God story is this. Imagine a heavenly courtroom 
God serves as the judge before whom we will all stand one day. The Satan character from the Hebrew word hasatan literally meant the prosecutor. The advocate, the Holy Spirit, serves as the defense counsel. And Jesus serves as our witness. In this trial, we stand before God guilty of sin, just that. We're busted. But Jesus puts his life on the line for us, and even though we are guilty as charged, God declares us as righteous, commutes the sentence, so that the Apostle Paul will write, the just shall live by faith, faith that God has granted us grace at our trial. Jesus begins today's passage by giving us all a direct order. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, there's only one commandment in the Gospel of John. It occurs on Maundy Thursday or Mandate Thursday that we will love one another the way he loves us. Take notice, this is Jesus' last words to his disciples. Time is running out. If I have only one last thing I can say to you, what's it going to be? And he gives it. It's not a suggestion. It's not a request. It is a commandment. Jesus elevates love to more than just a feeling. Feelings come and go. They ebb and they flow. Jesus wants us to understand love as an act of will. Love whether you feel like it or not. Love in such a way that it spills over your artificial boundaries, over your own walls, over the borders you erect. Yes, love your spouse, love your friends, love your companions, but also love the alien, love the misfit, love the enemy, love the ones you don't like. Talk about a tall order. This is, this is the absolute hardest of all. To pull it off is going to require each and every one of us to become vulnerable in ways that make us uncomfortable, in ways that frighten us. C.S. Lewis once wrote, to love at all is to become vulnerable. Allow yourself to love anything and your heart may certainly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap your heart carefully in hobbies and luxuries. Avoid any and all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket of your selfishness. But in that casket, soft, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable and irredeemable. Because, he says, the only place outside of heaven that you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love has a name, and it's called hell. The good news is that we don't have to do this alone. Help is on the way. Jesus sends another advocate. In the Trinitarian world, it's still Jesus coming back, this time in a new way. I spoke to you earlier about the legal side of advocate. There's another meaning, equally powerful. Advocate is protector, pastoral, 
tender. Jesus says, I know you're scared to be without me, but I will not leave you orphaned. That is such provocative language. It's the language of abandonment. I don't know if we have any congregants who were orphaned as infants. I've known several in my life, and I know how traumatic and scarring that sort of thing can be. God has a special place in his heart for orphans. I know that to be true, and the Bible affirms it. But I've known other kinds of orphans too. I mentioned a few weeks ago Camp Shalom, a camp that we created uh, for persons who were either infected or affected by AIDS. I heard many stories from survivors, parents who died, not even from behavior, but from needles. And their children were left behind. As a chaplain, I knew soldiers who died in the line of duty and left children orphaned. Did you grow up with an alcoholic parent like I did? If so, you also know a little bit about what it is to be abandoned. I wonder now as I wind my career down, if you asked my daughters if they ever felt a sense of abandonment because I put too much into the church life. I allowed church to overtake everything, even at times my own daughters. And by the way, be sure to protect Sam from that. And I know a lot of spiritual orphans too. People who feel as if the church they love somehow let them down, somehow did a number on them, left them feeling alone and without an advocate. And don't miss the irony in this story because in just a few hours after Jesus talks to the disciples, he himself is going to feel orphaned as he screams from the cross, my God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. In the midst of it all, Jesus promises that he will not leave us alone, abandoned, forsaken, orphaned. Help is not just on the way, help is already here. The shy member of the Trinity is anywhere Jesus was when he was among us. And we are tied together. Have you ever watched high-level mountain climbers like the ones who challenged Mount Everest? Have you ever noticed what they're doing as they ascend the mountain? They are all tied together. I had lunch with a man who climbed Mount Everest or actually made it to 26,000 feet before they had to abandon the climb because their team lost two members and very nearly lost his own son. He told me as we ate lunch, he said, do you know why we all tie in together? It's to keep the sane ones from going home. He was kidding about that, of course. It was to keep the team members from falling off the mountain. The life of faith can be like that. We have our doubts, we have our fears, we have our confidence shaken, and very often we feel alone. But I will not leave you orphaned. Trust me, I am sending another advocate. This advocate is going to tie into you for always. There's a story, a true story, about a little boy who couldn't sleep. He climbed into bed with his mother and father, and they fell asleep, but he still couldn't. And somewhere in the night, his mother sat up in bed and she saw him at the end of the bed sitting in a chair looking at them. And she said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm playing God. And she said, What's, what do you mean? He said, I'm watching over you while you sleep. Watching over us. 
pitching tent beside, advocating for us. This is not the end of the story. It's the beginning of the story. Is there life after Easter? Absolutely. I wonder if you're planning some sort of celebration this next weekend for Memorial Day. I know it's different. And I know we're not going to probably be able to do the things we used to do. But hopefully you'll find a creative way to be with the people you love. When I was growing up, we had picnics in my family on Memorial Day. We'd normally grill burgers and have corn on the cob and have butter running down your cheeks. There was baked beans that my mother made with strips of bacon across the top. There was watermelon. And every year there would come a point when my mother would come out and say, clean off the table, but keep your forks. That was the best news of all because it meant that the best was about to come. Would you understand me today if I said I wish Jesus' last words to his disciples had been, keep your forks, because the best is yet to come. I'm not going to leave you orphaned. I'm sending you another advocate. All of this in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit.